My name is Caleb Hunt. I'm the pastor at Grifton United Methodist Church, and welcome to the End of Words podcast, the home of our weekly sermons. If you are in the eastern North Carolina area and would like to come visit us, we have weekly worship services at 11 a.m. in our sanctuary on McRae Street, and we would love to have a chance to meet you in person. In the meantime, though, we pray that this message might help you in your own life, in your own context, to refocus on the story of Jesus. Our first scripture reading this morning comes from the book of Genesis. We're reading Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 and 27. Then God said, Let us make humanity in our image, according to our likeness. and Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the air, and over the cattle, and over all the wild animals of the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps upon the earth. So God created humanity in his image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Our second scripture reading comes from the book of James. We're reading James chapter 3, verses 1 through 12. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers and sisters, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. For all of us make many mistakes. Anyone who makes no mistakes in speaking is perfect, able to keep the whole body in check with a bridle. If we put bits into the mouths of horses to make them obey us, we guide their whole bodies. Or look at ships. Though they are so large that it takes strong winds to drive them, yet they are guided by a very small rudder, wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great exploits. How great a forest is set ablaze by a small fire, and the tongue is a fire. The tongue is placed among our members as a world of iniquity. It stains the whole body. It sets on fire the cycle of nature, and it is itself set on fire by hell. For every species of beast and of bird, of reptile and sea creature, can be tamed and has been tamed by the human species, but no one can tame the tongue, a restless evil full of deadly poison. With it we we bless the Lord and Father, and with it we curse those who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers and sisters, this ought not be so. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh and brackish water? Can a fig tree, my brothers and sisters, yield olives or a grapevine figs? No more than salt water can yield fresh. This is the word of God for us, the people of God. Thanks be to God. So my favorite book of the Bible is the book of Genesis, and I could probably get even more specific and say that my favorite chapter of the Bible is Genesis 1, although I'd probably have to broaden out a bit to like Genesis 1 through 3, the creation through the fall. This section of the Bible, it's so awesome because it's it's kind of the interpretive key to all of the Holy Scriptures. Like if you can really intimately know Genesis 1 through 3, then the rest of the Bible just starts to make more sense to you. Because the other authors and the other books of the Bible, they're constantly referring back to the beginning of Genesis, quoting it, alluding to it, commenting on it. It is so densely packed with theology, beauty, and truth. You just can't get enough of it. Which is why I was so excited to see James make a reference to Genesis 1 in our scripture reading for this week as we continue through our sermon series in this little New Testament book. Because I am going to use James' little reference as an excuse to start this sermon this sermon all the way back at the beginning of the beginning. Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, which says, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. 
It's the first verse in the Bible. It's sort of a summary statement of what comes next in Genesis chapter 1, verse 2. The narrative jumps backwards to uh, let us know what it was like when God created the heavens and the earth, how God's creative acts brought forth order, coherence, and meaning to the swirling chaos of the void, the deep, which was, before God spoke, tohu vabohu, the Hebrew says. It was formless and void, welter and waste, just swirling madness. But then God separated the light from the darkness. He set the stars in the sky. He gathered the waters into one place and he commanded the earth to burst forth with all forms of carefully ordered life. And then in verse 26, the narrative slows down for a second. The patterns of the preceding verses are broken in order to allow for a mysterious bit of divine inner monologue. God speaks to himself within his own being and he says, let us make humanity in our own image according to our own likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heaven and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every other living thing that moves upon the earth. This inner monologue is followed by the only creative act in Genesis 1 that is written in standard Hebraic verse. This is a mini poem stuck into the larger stylized narrative. And so God created humanity in his own image. In the image of God, he created them male and female. He created them. This little snippet of Genesis 1 is one of the most mind-blowing and profound parts of the entire Bible. And to understand why, we have to dig into the Hebrew language a bit and get a sense of some of the historical context. The Hebrew words, they're translated in English as image and likeness. Let us make humanity in our own image, according to our own likeness. Those words are tselem and demut. In the broader context of the ancient world, the time period during which Genesis 1 was written, those words were used in other cultures, cultures like Babylon and Assyria outside of Israel, for a very specific purpose. They referred to little physical statues that you would have in your home as household gods. Tselem and Demut, those were idols. Images, likenesses, made up of pieces of wood and stone that those cultures believed to be the very presence of their gods, gods like Baal and Marduk and such. The statues were the way that those gods were present and represented in the lives of their worshipers. You would make one or buy one, bring it into your home, set it up on the mantle, and then worship it, offer sacrifices to it, and thereby honor your deity. But in the Hebrew Bible, in Genesis 1, we hear that the Creator God made humanity in His image, according to His likeness. Can you see why the God of the Hebrew Bible, why Yahweh, was always so insistent that the Israelites never make any graven image of him, never make physical idols to represent him in the world? They were, they were totally unnecessary and actually offensive because God had already created human beings in his selim and according to his demut, in his likeness, according to his image. The God of the Old Testament had no need for statues or graven idols because human beings are themselves the very presence of God in the world, God's representatives, his image bearers, and thus they have been tasked with caring for and cultivating the rest of the created order. Human lives are literally sacred because they bear the imprint of their creator. It's hard to overstate just how different this understanding of human beings, human nature, is from the other options, the other ideas that were floating around in the ancient world at the time, the time when the Bible was written thousands of years ago. Let's take a quick peek at one of the other creation narratives that you might have run into if you lived in the Middle East a few millennia before Christ. This one that we're going to talk through is from the nation of Babylon. It's called the Enuma Elish. In this creation story, the powerful god of the storm, Marduk, is at war with Tiamat, the goddess of chaos. And Marduk ends up overpowering Tiamat. He then brutally murders the goddess by tearing her body in two. 
Marduk then creates the world out of Tiamat's bloody corpse. One half he puts up above and fashions the heavens out of it, and the other half of her body he puts down below and makes the earth out of it. Not yet finished, Marduk then executes Tiamat's right-hand man and creates humans out of that guy's poor blood and guts so that Marduk and his friends would have somebody that would do their bidding. So in the religious imagination of Babylon, what are human beings? Are they the very likeness of the holy creator designed to be his representatives on earth and thus endowed with inherent worth? No, they are slaves, made out of the bloody carcass of a weaker, conquered deity. Let's ask the further question, what are human lives worth if the Enuma Elish is your founding story? Not much. Human beings are pawns. They are playthings to be conquered, cast aside, whatever. The couple verses that we read from Genesis 1 this morning, they changed the world. They were the foundation for societies built upon the idea that human beings, all of them, the powerful and the weak, the rich and the poor, male and female, all are sacred and of incalculable worth. Because human beings are image bearers, made in the Creator God's own likeness. And when we turn to James, we find that he takes this truth, that human beings are image bearers of God, and he, a- and he asks us his signature question, do you actually believe that? In this case, James asks this question in, response, in reference specifically to the topic of the tongue, the power and the potential of human speech. If we did believe that every person in the world bore the likeness of God himself, how would that change the way that we deal with our tongue, the way that we speak and how we talk? Well, we're going to try to answer those questions over the next several minutes, but before we do, let's let James set the scene for us. Introduce the topic, establish the stakes. We're going to start at the beginning of chapter 3. After giving a stern warning to teachers in the first verse of chapter 3, a warning that should probably make pastors like me who teach the Bible for a living lose just a little bit of sleep, James says midway through chapter 3, verse 2, anyone who makes no mistakes in speaking is perfect, able to keep the whole body in check with a bridle. That word for perfect, it's the same word that James uses in chapter 1, verse 4, when he says that we should take the joy in our trials because they have the potential to perfect us, to make us mature and complete, lacking in nothing. All of these words and phrases have the sense of wholeness, completeness, becoming wholly the kind of human that God always intended you to be without the flaws and the cracks introduced by sin. It's sanctification the process of becoming more like Christ, the process of not only being forgiven for our sins, which is justification, but of actually being freed from our sins, which is sanctification. It's the goal of the Christian life. And here James says that if you don't mess up in what you say, then you've done it. That's the whole ballgame. Control your tongue and you are good to go. Now, obviously, James is exaggerating a bit to make a point, something that biblical authors did regularly. Sometimes I feel like we don't always realize that. And we cannot take James chapter 3, verse 2 to mean that as long as, you know, I only say nice things, then I can do whatever the heck I want. I can uh, shower people with compliments while stabbing them in the back. That is patently ridiculous, and the Bible is trusting us not to misunderstand here. What James is doing with this exaggeration, don't mess up in what you say and you're perfect, is he is declaring war against the tendency of seemingly every group of humans to downplay, to underestimate the power of words and speech. Sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. It's got to be one of the stupidest and also one of the most common sayings around, and it speaks to our inclination to undersell the danger of an unrestrained tongue. And, you know, I think that most of us learn that the sticks and stones thing is garbage pretty quick. The, the, we learn that the things that people say to you can obviously hurt, painfully, deeply, sometimes with effects that linger much longer than it takes for a broken bone to heal. We all know that probably by the time that we're in middle school or high school or something. 
But I do think that our culture, particularly in this historical moment actually, often falls into the pattern of thinking that James is trying to critique. For instance, have y'all noticed that lately, some of the most successful and famous politicians, celebrities, public figures around, they are the ones with the most shamelessly unrestrained tongues. Figures whose fame and popularity is actually based on their ability and their willingness to hurl insults and hatred towards their opponents, to people who are different who or who think differently than they do. We all know this kind of person. They're all over TV and political ads. They're on late night talk shows. And what's really scary is that oftentimes, as long as these people are representing our opinions, as long as they are on our side in the culture war, so to speak, as long as they are going after people that we don't like, then we kind of look the other way. We say something like, oh, they're, they're just somebody that's willing to say it like it is. Or he or she just has an abrasive personality. They like to ruffle feathers. Or we might say, but look at what they do. They are voting for the right things or fighting the right people or supporting the right causes. Who cares about what they say? That's a small, insignificant thing in the bigger picture. James could not disagree more. And he's got evidence. He's got arguments. To defend his thesis, his claim that the tongue is the very key to integrity, James gives us a series of very creative and helpful analogies. In verse 3 of chapter 3, he considers the horse's bit, just a small piece of metal that we put in the horse's mouth and then allows us to control and direct a mammal weighing an average of almost 900 pounds. Or look at the sailboat, James says. It's even heavier. It takes huge gusts of wind just to budge that thing, but the little rudder allows the pilot to direct it wherever it wants, wherever he wants. The tongue is the same kind of thing. It sets the direction. It guides the body despite its small size. It guides a person towards what is good, right, and true or towards destruction. Near the end of chapter 3, verse 5, James ratchets up the intensity even further. His rhetoric crescendos into a flurry of extreme images. The Greek here is actually a bit obscure, but James is clearly talking about the power of the tongue using the language of hellfire. The tongue is a fire. It's a world of iniquities. It stains the body. It sets all of life ablaze. And it is itself kindled by Gehenna, by hell. By the time we get to verse 8, James has sort of worked himself up into this panting fit, and he declares breathlessly that the tongue, the tongue, is a restless evil, y'all. It is full of deadly poison. Why? Why is James so worked up over this? Is he not being just a, a little bit dramatic? Why is James convinced that the locust of so much damage and hurt and sin can be traced back to the tongue, to human speech? He lets us know in verse 9. With the tongue, we bless the Lord and Father, and with it we curse those who are made in the likeness of God. If that verse doesn't pierce your heart a bit, then you need to read it again. With the tongue, we bless the Lord and Father, and with it, we curse those who are made in the likeness of God. A Christian with an unrestrained tongue, who is willing to insult and denigrate and slander other people. In James' opinion, that is the height of hypocrisy. It is the ultimate example of not allowing the things that you say that you believe have any effect whatsoever on the way that you actually live your life. It shows that you are spiritually blind. Because you don't realize the very God who you sing to and pray to and worship Sunday morning is the same God that has imprinted his likeness and his image into the people that you curse as stupid, evil, and ignorant. We haven't had a grammar lesson in a while, I don't think. I don't think we've had a grammar lesson at all on the podcast feed. Um, you up for a, are you all up for a grammar lesson? Doesn't matter. We're going to do it. We're going to break down two different sentences. Sentence number one is, you are a fool. Sentence number two is you are acting foolishly. 
All right, let's start with you are a fool. This sentence has three parts, a subject, a verb, and a predicate nominative. The subject in a sentence is the word that is doing or being something. So in this case, what's the subject? You is the subject. As we look for the verb, we normally think of verbs as actions, like to kick or to run or something. But in this case, our verb is the to be verb, are. In the sentence, you are a fool, this verb is equating the subject you with the predicate nominative fool, which is the third major part in the sentence. It could be that you could just put an equal sign in the middle, right? You equal a fool. You and a fool, those things are interchangeable. They are basically the same thing. It is what you are. Now let's look at the second sentence. You are acting foolishly. Same subject, right? You. And you might think it's the same verb since R is in there, but in sentence number two, R is what's called a helping verb that's being used to establish the present continuous tense along with the, the, verb, the word acting. So the verb in sentence number two is actually the phrase are acting. Foolishly is an adverb modifying the word acting. How are you acting? You're acting foolishly. Notice that in sentence number two, the subject does not equal anything. You does not equal anything. There's no predicate nominative. You don't necessarily equal a fool, but you are doing things that a fool might do, foolish things. Now, as Christians, we might find ourselves in a position where we have to call out bad behavior and sin, and we often have to use our tongues to do it, right? That's, that's just obvious. Plenty of examples of characters in the Bible calling out injustice and wickedness with their tongues, no less. It is not a good thing to just let sin and evil fly under the radar. And James' teachings in chapter 3 here do not rule this out. They do not mean that we just have to say only nice, flowery things to everyone all the time. That we have to call what is bad good, or we have to just not say anything at all. That's not what James is saying. I do, however, think that what James is saying is that when we do call out bad things, we should use sentences like sentence number two and never sentences like sentence number one. Sentence number two, remember, you are acting foolishly. Not a problem there. Sometimes people do foolish things, stupid things, and sometimes we have to let them know that so that they can correct it, right? So they can get back on track. We should not, however, say you are a fool. Why? It seems like just a small little grammar shift, but it's actually huge. There's a profound difference here. To say to someone you are a fool is to misunderstand their very nature. It's to imply that they equal a fool as if it is some eternal, unchanging fact about them, set in stone or put inside their DNA or something. It is who they are. And that is a terrible and horribly incorrect thing to say to somebody. Why? Because what they are is an image bearer of the Creator God, made in His likeness. That's what they are. It's one of the coolest things about Christianity, that while the surrounding cultures were telling stories about how humans were formed out of the blood and guts of a traitor, God's people... Yahweh's people were telling a story about how human beings were created as the very image and likeness of the Creator, and thus of uncountable worth. Now, an image bearer might act foolishly, often does, actually, in which case another image bearer might need to come alongside them and say, what are you doing, man? You are acting foolishly. You got to make some changes here. But to say to someone that they are a fool is to actually deny one of the fundamental truths of the Bible. Let's locate this in some concrete, more everyday examples. Imagine a parent who has a kid who is just making a real mess of things. They aren't trying hard in school. Maybe they're flunking out. They're falling with the, in with the wrong crowd. And they're in real danger of screwing up their life. And, and the parent decides that they need to give them a real sharp talking to. That parent could burst into their kid's room and start saying things like, You are lazy. You are stupid. You are an idiot. Subject, verb, predicate. Not good. 
And you can hear the difference between something like that and something like you are not fulfilling your responsibilities. You are making foolish, dangerous decisions that could negatively affect the rest of your life. You need to make some changes. The second approach is not letting the kid off easy. It's not ignoring anything, but it doesn't denigrate the kid's nature and it leaves room for change and for growth. Next time you watch TV or listen to the radio or whatever, see if you can identify these two different ways of talking. Is the news anchor or the commentator constantly trying to get you to think of the other side or some individual or other group of people in the terms of sentence one? Those people, that person, they are devious. They are dangerous. They are stupid. Is there any recognition at all of the other side as human beings of worth and value who might be capable of discourse and change? If not, you might want to change the channel. Because the stakes are high, y'all. Once you, have start, once you start to misunderstand the very nature of the people that you don't like or that you think are doing bad things, once you start thinking and speaking in terms that those people are evil, they are stupid, they are dangerous, it means that you've forgotten that what people are is they are image bearers of a holy God. They are made in his likeness. And once you've forgotten that, it is a slippery slope to who knows what. Because if someone is not an image bearer of God, actually they are ignorant, lazy, or harmful, then maybe, maybe it's okay to insult them. Maybe it's okay to neglect them. Maybe it's even okay to hurt them, you know, if you, if you had a need to. And once we've made it to that point, maybe it's not too hard to understand why James describes the undisciplined tongue as a fire that burns through everything in its path. It's kindled by the very flame of hell. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. <laughs>